0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you Stripe Moves Beyond Payments with Stripe Identity. UK tech and fintech leaders team up to fight climate crisis. And web founder Tim Berners-Lee to auction source code as NFT. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about some of the things we're working on here at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors.
1: (music) Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS rebuild to download it now. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at Temenos.com.
0: Welcome to episode uh, 538 of FinTech Insider. My name is Adam Davis and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co host, the one and only Mr. David Breer. David, how are you doing?
2: All right. It's been a great uh, a great sort of business week. It's been a pretty crappy being me week if I'm honest with you. Oh. I, I uh we had our house sort of I've been sort of 3 or 4 months in the making, but the day we were meant to exchange our sellers pulled out this week. Oh, so man. I'm sort of I'm sort of in that like I kind of hate Life type vibe a little bit, but uh, but I'm sure it'll all get sorted. So uh, fingers crossed. But the stamp duty in the UK runs out at the end of this month, and it's definitely not going to happen oh. then. So uh, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm a bit sad and probably out of pocket come uh, come the end of oh, July. I'm sorry so, to uh, hear that.
0: That's um, yeah, that's like a it, it's a nightmare when you hear of those stories. And the um, you never know. There might be another stamp duty extension. That they're sort of they're talking about it tentatively. I think in the press fingers
2: crossed I'll be honest like uh, if that does happen like I will have never have loved Boris as much <laughs> as if that does happen so uh, Boris if you're listening I know you're a big fan of Fintech if you are listening to this podcast please extend the stamp duty I'd lo- I really appreciate it oh,
0: Boris a big fan of Fintech you never know you never know um listen we are uh, we're not alone uh, we're joined by some awesome guests and um, both making their fintech insider debuts um, which is kind of a rarity these days so uh, welcome on board uh, first of all we have Gus Tomlinson who's the general manager uh, for identity Identity and fraud Europe at GBG. Uh, Gus, w- welcome to the show. Uh, like identity is a super hot topic right now. It's the first story we're going to get to. Um, how are you doing?
3: Yeah, great, thank you. I've got to say my week's probably been a lot better than David's. So <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm good and thrilled to be here. I agree. Identity is a hot topic and something that I absolutely love. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to the chat.
0: Good stuff. Uh, And next, we have Sammy Fry, who's Net Zero Programme Lead at TechNation. Sammy, thanks for joining us. Again, like uh, another massive week in the more macro political climate, a huge week for fintech, huge week for the global crisis, following obviously the G7 that was uh, here in the UK. Um, Super excited to learn about the initiative that you guys are doing at TechNation. And welcome to the show.
4: Yeah, thanks a lot. Good to be here. Um, And yeah, it's been actually a busy week for me as well. So um, no, really nice to be here. We've actually just launched our our sustainability strategy as of yesterday. So we just measured all of our emissions, and um, yeah, glad to get out of the way. So yeah, no, good you to measured. Are you green? We are indeed. Well, getting there, slowly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Slave shorty, cool. Um, all right, look, let, we'll jump straight into the show. I'm sure we'll hear about that in a little bit uh, later on. Uh, the first story is about identity, uh, and it's about Stripe. So they are moving beyond payments. I mean, I think they've already moved beyond payments, but they're moving into yet another vertical uh, with Stripe identity. Uh, so this was a story that was carried on TechCrunch and FinExtra and probably all over your social media if you follow FinTech. Um, so Stripe continues to expand beyond payments, obviously launching a tool that Helps internet businesses securely verify the identities of their users from over 30 countries. I mean, we're talking an MLP, and MVP here, 30 countries. This is not small. Um, Stripe Identity is designed to help online firms comply with age requirements and KYC laws, as well as to reduce fraud and prevent account takeovers. And um, there's quite a lot in that, which we'll come to in a sec. To prove their identity, uh, users uh, who are using Stripe Identity take a photo of their government ID and a live selfie and then Stripe's machine learning then matches their picture to the ID. And businesses can also request that users key in additional information over and above that, uh, should they wish. Identity is the latest move, as we know, if you follow Stripe, uh, we do on the podcast, it's the latest move in their diversification play. In the last few weeks alone, uh, it's rolled out a tax compliance tool, which I think we've, we covered on this, a fraud tool. Uh, it's made a new round of carbon removal purchases, which is really cool. Uh, they're doing a whole bunch of stuff, which we'll get into in a minute. We do have a soundbite from Matt Henderson, who's the business lead for EMEA at Stripe. So let's hear from him now.
4: Hi, this is Matt from Stripe. You might have seen we've been pretty busy over the last few weeks with a whole bundle of announcements from expanding to the UAE to a new partnership with GrabPay in Asia. And in just the last few days, we've launched two great new products, Stripe Tax, which automates tax calculation and collection for transactions on Stripe, If any listeners here have had to handle VAT compliance across Europe, they'll know just how bad of a headache we're solving for here. And Stripe Identity, the first self-serve tool of its kind, so online businesses can begin verifying the identities of their users in minutes. Identity is built on the same infrastructure that powers Stripe's own global compliance and risk management, meaning identity users can rely on Stripe's deep investments in security. Cool. Uh,
0: that last bit's really interesting. And we'll get to that in a sec as well. The fact that this is almost proprietary tech, rather than some of the stuff which they've done before, which has come off the back of uh, acquisitions that they've made. Um, Gus, I'm going to come to you first on this, pretty obviously. You work in the identity and data space. Like, First thoughts on this, uh, is this like the continuing takeover of everything financial by Stripe?
3: No, I think it's, um, personally, I think it's a very sensible piece. And if we look at payments and identity, they're so intrinsically linked anyway, because you need to have that trust around a transaction. So it makes perfect sense. And Stripe's had the availability to do identity um, for a long time. And they've got the experience of relying on third parties as they've onboarded their merchants, for example. So for them to be able to develop tech and actually bring identity to the masses, especially for a lot of smaller businesses who might not have previously seen it as a priority or aren't as heavily regulated around things like age, anti-money laundering, etc. Um, and then I think it's a very sensible move for them. And I think really interesting and important that we're seeing identity come to the forefront of tech businesses.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I did want to ask one thing. So uh, f- for the layperson who potentially doesn't, I suppose, get involved in KYC systems, identity systems sort of day in, day out, what what in your mind, what differentiates a good ID system from a, a bad one?
3: Honestly, it's it's all around uh, what a organization needs and how customers sit. No single ID tool I think is ever really fit for purpose. The The thing about identities is no identity is ever created equal no customer journey is ever really created equal and everybody's demands is also very different so to really create an identity system that first of all gives a cracking customer experience and second of all meets the regulatory and the risk requirements of a business you actually have to layer things like data documents biometrics digital footprints all of these things because without that you can't ever really trust an identity so it's the ability to actually create tools and systems that work in an ecosystem to end up giving that end result to a consumer and to protect businesses
0: cool i'm going to ask you one more then i'll open it up to the others um uh Pricing. Stripe tends to, tends to, not completely across the board, charge a relative premium for its services, uh, given its branding. Do do you see the same thing in identity? And if so, do you think they can still win market share? Because there are so many sort of uh, identity as a service players, you know, Jumio and Fido. There's a whole wrath of companies who have sort of raised in the last two years, you know, almost calling themselves the potential Stripe of of the, of the identity service sector. So they actually use that banner. Uh, it, is, is, this, is it a price-sensitive service or actually, you know, can their brand almost, you know, um, perpetuate that?
3: It's, I mean, and coming from a GBG point of view, we've been building, developing and selling ID and fraud tools for over 30 years. So I think it's that element where actually similar to Stripe, similar to the Gmeos, the Onfidos, everybody else in the market, it's understanding the value that your product is delivering to your customer base, There is also a difference between an SME customer in comparison to an enterprise and the importance of that to the business. So I think if Stripe have created and have put to market a tool that ultimately makes it easier and simpler for businesses to deploy it, then they can probably hold a premium for that. Ultimately, it all comes down to how good your technology is. Um, And within the identity space, there's an awful lot of competition in that. If we look at your Onfido's, your Jumio's. Um, If we look at our document tech, it's much more than just looking at a document and matching a face. There's a lot of things around tampering, detection. There's a lot of things that go behind that. We talk about biometric matching, but is that liveness? We think about customer experience and how you bring NFC into the journey. So actually, it's a hugely competitive market. um, And the way to win and to be able to have that price is by delivering the best tools and solutions to the market.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. David, it's an interesting... Do you think that this has... More validation, if you like, or more, um, or the service will have more trust because this is one of Stripe's internal processes, almost that they've externalised. Because it's it's kind of security, it's identification, so trust goes hand in hand with that. And I wonder if it's they made a point of actually building this or externalising their own service rather than buying from someone else.
2: Yeah, I mean that hasn't gone bad for other people who have done it that way, have they? Uh, I mean, AWS was sort of probably most famous, right? They they built it for themselves and spun it out because it was so good. So um, I think it's really interesting. And obviously, I mean, we've had Patrick Collinson on the the podcast in the past, and I think Stripe have got a habit of they solve problems, they don't release products. They they've you know the the the, the tax piece is it's about solving a pain point that a consumer really has. Uh, And if you sort of go back and listen to the interview we did with Patrick Collinson, it was very much around, you know, almost his disdain really for the rest of the industry and the way in which they go about it. It's like they almost think too much about internal product than it is just talk to customers and solve problems and, you know, keep moving on and keep moving forwards. And, you know, Stripe have been doing this now in various different slices of industries for, you know, for a very long time uh, and seem reasonably relentless about actually what they keep sort of taking on. So uh, I think this will be successful though. I think to your point with something that's so good for them that it will be good for you, uh, and also with the brand on the back of it, um, I think it will I think it will do really well.
3: Sorry, I was just going to add to that. I think that point around solving a customer problem as well, it's absolutely, and people shouldn't underestimate the problem that identity is bringing to organisations, particularly if we look at the past year digital transformation and ultimately the sheer amount of identities that are stolen, available, the synthetic identities that are being created. It is a huge problem and a pain point and headache for customers. So from that point of view, Stripe have completely stayed to their strategy in terms of consistently solving customer problems.
2: Mm. Is it's, it's interesting on that, though. As you said, though, Gus, this is identity verification, isn't it? It's not identity in the, the sense that you would want uh, a central digital identity in order to give views of that. So, you know, this is maybe them dipping their toe in the market. But equally, I, I guess, from a, a big banking operational perspective, then digital identity is you know, still a, a very far-flung sort of, you know, Stargate, Star Trek kind of, uh, you know, vibe, isn't it, in terms of what they're doing. Many are, are still struggling with basic onboarding capability to to bring people in. And the sort of pressures from challenger banks is almost kind of exposing those fragilities in just just basic identity capability. So, Joe, you know, I, th- I think one thing in this, I wonder if Stripe now is almost becoming, you know, too big in terms of all of the things that they do within a, a setup. I I wonder actually if there is a uh, a need for some of these things to start coming from some other organisations because not not from Stripe's perspective. I'm sure they'll want to keep doing more things and getting bigger and you know solving more problems for for the consumer. But but when so many of your business critical systems are sort of you know, all your eggs are in that striped mm. basket, then I wonder if that does, from a, a bank's perspective, start to raise any concerns from, a, you know, a, a systems and, you know, business-critical systems all in one supplier. So time will tell, though. Uh, I think it's uh, it's unlikely, like everything else that they've done so far, that this won't be successful. Um, so, uh, but let's see, wait and see.
0: Yeah, they've got a, uh, they raised $600 million, uh, back in March, a $95 billion uh, valuation, which is not terrible. Uh, the one thing I do like about this, before we, before we move on, uh, it's, deve- it's Stripe, whenever they build services, they build them developer first, always. It's the smallest amount of code that you've got basically to put in Uh, you know, to allow your development teams to use to integrate into your services. And if you look at the material that they've released on this, they haven't released actually too much uh, in comparison to some of the other products that they've launched recently. But the amount of code that you actually need to integrate this service is so small uh, and it is directed towards developers. Amazing. Um, uh, An amazing community they've managed to build around the developer ecosystem as well. Anyway, we will move on because we have to move on to the next uh, story. And this is around, uh, Sammy, one more in your court. UK tech leaders team up to fight climate crisis. So this was uh, from Business Matters, uh, but picked up the story. But I think I've seen this initiative uh, a little bit uh, as far as uh, a couple of months ago. But Sammy, you can obviously elaborate. The Tech Zero Task Force officially launches this week. Uh, It's targeting 1,000 members by COP, 26 this November. COP26, Sammy, that's
4: COP26. Yes, the big climate change conference. Uh, ah, got it this yeah. november
0: good 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 okay we can talk about that in a sec uh, the tech zero task force is led by bulb co-founder and ceo hayden wood uh, industry body tech nation uh, and includes british tech firms including babylon city master faculty and fintechs such as go Sabito, abito on fido revolute starling back and wise uh, these companies have transformed uh industries including banking energy and healthcare and are now coming together to boost the uk's fight uh, against the climate crisis um sammy i'm obviously going to come over to you first uh, how long has this initiative been going on for? And I guess uh, what, what's changed, I suppose, in the course of the last couple of weeks, maybe obviously the intersection with the G7 that that sort of uh, made this be carried by news outlets and uh, and so on?
4: Yeah, of course. Well, this was actually drafted up quite some time ago. So it came out of a, I believe, a government request um, by Oliver Dowden, who's the secretary of state for DCMS. Um, and it, it came from a problem. So there's a plethora of confusion at the moment around achieving net zero, um, in terms of you know, what net zero really looks like. And there's also a lack of collaboration uh, generally within the tech sector. I think there's a, a statistic that came out recently that says only 12% of people really have a good understanding of net zero. Um, so Bulb, um, as you said, CityMapper, Starling Bank, um, and a lot of other UK tech companies, including, including ourselves and Nation as the industry body, um, came together to look at how do we solve this. So it resulted in an eight-week sprint. I believe we, uh, we began talking about this. Yeah, it was a few months ago now. And we broke into focus groups to look at, you know, what this niche could look like. And I think w- one, there was there's the commitment side of things. We we're asking companies to make a commitment to net zero, to really publicly declare um, their commitment and dedication to achieving net zero. Um, then we're looking, we're, we're currently looking at launching a toolkit as well. Uh, so this would be a consumer directory looking at supporting consumers lead greener and more sustainable lifestyles. Um, and then there's the, the toolkit as well. So this is all, all around. Uh, supporting companies set a net zero strategy. So, the talk really outlines what best practice looks like for companies who are setting out a net zero strategy. And yeah, and it was launched on, on Monday at Cogex on Monday morning. Uh, so, that was really, really exciting. And yeah, it was amazing to see it come to fruition as well after quite a lot of time um, discussing and obviously planning. So, um, it's been great. And the traction so far has been brilliant. Uh, Monzo have also just signed up. Uh, so, now we've got Starling, Revolut, and Monzo all signed up to Tech Zero, which is brilliant to see.
0: Awesome. And I I guess, um, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of questions I could ask, but one probably the audience might want to know is, what does net zero, I suppose, actually mean? and what are the ways that you can achieve it so insofar as is it net zero carbon emissions or does it mean actually from the emissions that you have versus let's say uh, the sustainable investments that you're making in your processes or you know uh, by lump sum capital whatever it might be uh, how do companies achieve this net zero and especially by november
4: yeah, this is it. So, um, net zero is a very ambiguous term, and there's still a lot of academics still debating exactly what it does look like. But in in its simplest form, uh, it's it's around companies reducing their emissions as much as they can. Um, across Scope 1, 2, and 3. And really simply, Scope 1 refers to direct emissions. So this is what companies own, such as their buildings, their fleets. Scope 2 refers to purchased electricity. And Scope 3 is one of the biggest focus areas at the moment, especially for startups and scale-ups, which is essentially everything else, all your indirect emissions. Um, so this covers business travel, your purchase goods and services, um, essentially everything else, even from IT equipment, for example. And this is the, the biggest um, at the focus area at the moment, it's um, 98% of 10 nations emissions actually. So that the plant, so, what you, so what companies need to do is reduce their emissions as much as possible. And to do that, we need to start benchmarking ourselves. So that's why reporting on your emissions is so important because it gives you a place to start. Um, and then once you've reduced your emissions as much as you can, then you need to offset the rest. So every single company will always have residual emissions. So emissions that are left from... Um, other aspects of the business, is you can't really get away from uh, causing some emissions in the world we live in. Um, so that's where we need to invest in good sort of nature-based solutions. Um, yeah, that's a, a brief overview. Right? No, it
0: makes sense. If I'm a uh, if I'm a, a legacy, i say legacy bank, obviously for this podcast, but a, but but a legacy company or a company that's been around around the block for the last 50, 60 years or whatever, I'm going to be looking at this and thinking, wow, you know, if if I'm a fintech or if I'm a new you know tech company and I started my business three, four years ago, it's going to be so much easier for me to become, net, you know, net zero and, you know, parade it as a PR exercise or whatever it might be that they'll do off the back of it. Is it that, and but please, you know, be, be relatively honest with this, is it easier for these guys to achieve a net zero rating? And actually, should we have sympathy with the big companies that are struggling to do that just because of the, you know, the estates that they, the legacy estates they run, both from a tech perspective and also from obviously a physical perspective?
4: yeah i think it's actually equally difficult for both so when you look at startups and scale ups you know they've got so many fires to put out you know sustainability is often not their focus area they're focused on business survival getting off the ground um so for them at the moment um that's one of the, one of the big focus areas of the task force is how can we support them what sort of tools and technologies are out there already to really make it as easy as possible for companies to measure their emissions and also get started on the net zero strategy and then corporations and multinationals on the other hand they've got hugely complex supply chains um you know huge businesses they have to assess so many different areas to even be able to get you know an, a general understanding of what their emissions are you know if you look at um a multinational agricultural industry for example you know they would have to look at you know what's their livestock like how many how many cows do we have? What does that mean in terms of our emissions? It's so complicated. Mm. Um, so, so I think there's, there's two big challenges there. Um, and, and, and that's what the Tech Zero Task Force is all about. Although focus on digital technology, but all around, how can we support both those bigger multinational companies to make net zero targets and as easy as possible for them? So most of the time with multinationals, obviously they'll have financial resources to work with consultancies um, to, to, to get their input, um, which is obviously far easier than the startups and scale-ups. Who have, who may not have the time or financial resources to to use third parties, um, but it's I think it's equally challenging for both. It's hard to hard to really say one's easier than the other.
0: Yeah, it's fair enough. And, and David, I mean, we're seeing as 11FS, we're seeing a lot of interest in, um, I guess, sustainability is the buzzword at the moment, but we're, uh, and it should be um, because it's kind of been neglected for so long. Do, do you see, I suppose, in some of the stuff that we're doing, the inquiries that we're getting, um, do you see, a, I suppose, a, a step change in the attitudes of maybe more traditional organisations to sustainability in terms of the way that the, the movement, I guess, resonates with its end users and, and therefore they have to act? Um, are, are we? Are you seeing anything, I suppose, out of the ordinary on this topic than maybe we did three, four years ago.
2: I mean, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head there really is like, actually, look, we didn't have competition in the market for such a long period of time. And now actually the sort of selection process from a consumer's perspective is people want to buy into businesses that they buy into, you know, not just do you do the thing I pay you to do, but do you do it in a way that actually I will, uh, you know, feel good about really in terms of the, the process. So, So I think with that competition means, you know, organizations that are able to, you know, show this and, you know, take more of a sustainable stance, in, in a similar way that actually we've seen with, you know, even things like diversity and inclusion, you know, people don't want to buy business from people who are completely non-representative of, of actually the people that they want to engage with. So, you know, I think it's interesting that competition drives this type of Uh, change but ultimately it's good for competition because it means that again customers have greater choice Um, but it's good for the environment as well right you know we we sort of forget that often in in these things that if they're used really as a like as you sort of said sometimes as a you know a PR exercise so that people are involved in the thing Um, but ultimately whatever the reason you know if if this does happen and people are involved in it it's good for us all because you know ice caps and stuff you know like that's important <laughs> yeah
0: there's the, yeah you're right the the upside is very up um so yeah absolutely and uh, gus just from your perspective any anything you want to add on this
3: yeah i think i mean just to kind of build on what david said we think about consumers and absolutely um these things become important but also within the tech industry it's also our employees i mean it's we when we go to market and we're trying to hire tech talent that is these things are important to people. So actually, sustainability is becoming at the core of our values. And it is, again, ice caps, it's critical. We all have this in our minds now. And I think for consumers, for employees, for anybody that we actually want to connect to on the right level, then these things are really important.
2: It's, um, it's interesting, isn't it? There's a there's a bit of a sort of a bifurcation of, uh, of you know, caring to a certain degree. Because, I mean, on one hand, we've got an explosion of NFTs, like, you know, using just insane amounts of electricity to to generate, you know, I don't know, crypto kitties, whatever, like, you know, like crazy things. Um, but on the other hand, we've got players like BlackRock, you know, moving to, you know, ESG funds that are creating more returns for customers than traditional funds were so it's an interesting sort of split isn't it that where actually you know the industry is almost kind of gravitating more towards sort of doing good for customers doing good for the environment as you say Gus doing good for um, making employees feel more aligned to their own values not just the business's values but at the same time we've got like you know Elon Musk doing crazy things and you know people selling tweets for you know ridiculous amounts of money Fossil fuels being burned to to do those things. So it, it is a funny old time in the tech space, isn't it? Really?
0: Yeah. There's a. Uh, it it it's it's quite flip. It feels quite. Um, I mean, the the the, the crypto movement um, almost feels just like a juggernaut on its own, and it actually feels like sustainability almost is 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 part of a constraint that's been put on it. Probably over the last maybe month or so, I know sort of the the, the prices of a lot of the cryptos have 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 come back and retracted. Pretty significantly over the last sort of six weeks, mainly because of what what he said, uh, Elon Musk around sustainability. Okay. Well,
2: well, it's um, well, it's interesting because it's it's actually like a you know, uh, ESG is is a movement. You know, like actually, it is a a movement of of people sort of thinking in a different way. Most of what kind of comes at the heart of of cryptocurrency and distributed ledger technology is a sort of movement away from centralized. You know, control and governance and and everything that kind of is is with that. Uh, again, you know, occasionally it's about crypto kitties and that's good fun too. But um, but you know, it's almost like the. That these two things need to sort of come together at some point don't they and uh, uh it's going to be interesting to see how whether the technology of the you know change the world you know power away from central bodies and the movement for esg and socially responsible decision making for from corporate organizations like this has got to come together at some point isn't it
4: the crypto is actually uh, quite emissions intensive as well because of the the um, data mining involved yeah of course Yeah yeah
2: just insane amounts of electricity like and and nfts are just insane like absolutely insane how much they're using but um but it's interesting it's almost like the greater good is removal of power from central bodies therefore it's like which one is greater good it's like do you want do you want the the fed knowing everything about you or do you want to save polar bears like you've got to make a decision (laughs) it's going to be one of these two things so uh,
0: it's got to be the polar bears man you've got to save the polar bears I mean, I'd go with a polar bear. Yeah,
3: exactly. (laughs) All we need is David Attenborough to give a ruling and then we will be clear on which way to go. That would be (laughs) something. Yeah, Yeah,
0: if David Attenborough was to to bring out a white paper on his version of uh, sustainable crypto or sustainable cryptocurrency, can you imagine how successful that would be?
2: Attenborough coin, like you heard it here first, folks. Attenborough
0: coin. (laughs) David, we've we've been sucked into crypto. We're talking about (laughs) talking about ESG being sucked into crypto, as as is a lot of uh, what we talk about at the moment. But we have actually got a couple of crypto news stories coming up. Uh, But for the moment, we're going to take a quick pause. uh, Hear back from
1: our sponsors, and uh, we'll be back with you shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Visa's fintech fast-track program is a quick and easy way to connect to the Visa network and issue payment credentials. Whether you're an up-and-coming neobank, modernizing B2B payments, or launching a new crypto solution, amazing things can happen when your innovation is combined with the power of one of the world's largest payment networks. Learn more about the possibilities at partner.visa.com. With a global consumer panel of 15 million registered members, over 11 years of historic single-source data, and proprietary technology that connects data and simplifies the research process, UGov is home to the largest collection of constant, entirely permissioned consumer opinion and rich behavioral intelligence in the world. To learn more, visit business.ugov.com.
0: So the next story we move on to is around Amex, American Express, uh, and it's around a company opening its first business accounts. Uh, this is uh, with Cabbage, who, of course, they acquired not so long ago. This was picked up by FinExtra, but again, it's been uh, all over your uh, your fintech news outlet. So American Express launches its first checking account, uh, leveraging technology developed by Cabbage. It's acquired them in August last year, um, as part of a strategy to roll out a range of cash flow services to business. Um, Cabbage Checking, which is what it's called, uh, is a no-fee digital account that pays 1.1% interest 1.1% sorry, interest, on up to $100,000, that is, uh, in balances. Uh, includes mobile check deposits, a debit card, uh, bill pay, uh, targeted savings features, as well as an access to a network of ATMs, and a retail location service for cash transactions. Uh, small business owners, Owners can apply online for an account in minutes, regardless of their business's age or revenue, which is pretty cool. And Gina Taylor-Cotter, who's the SVP uh, of Strategy and Business Operations at Cabbage, said small businesses should not have to sacrifice the features they expect from a bank in order to experience the benefits of an affordable business checking account, Uh, which was quite a powerful statement. We've also got a soundbite from Catherine Petralia, who's the co-founder of Cabbage. So let's hear from uh, her now.
5: Hi, I'm Catherine Petralia, co-founder of Cabbage. We're excited to have launched Cabbage Checking, which is American Express's first checking account offering. It's part of American Express's larger strategy to move beyond the card and help small businesses manage their cash flow. We've also relaunched Cabbage funding to millions of existing customers offering flexible lines of credit between $100,000 and $150,000. Both of these products are part of our integrated cash flow management platform, intended to simplify the lives of small business owners as they wear so many hats running their companies. For cab is Checking, there are no monthly fees nor minimum balance requirements, and once approved, businesses can earn 1.1% APY on balances up to $100,000, access 19,000 in-network ATMs for free, Deposit cash at 90,000 retailers, places you go every day, like CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart. You can deposit checks via the mobile app, save towards business goals, or set aside taxes with our reserves feature, and so much more. It only takes minutes for small businesses to apply, and it's available to any eligible U.S. small businesses, regardless of the business's age or revenue. To find out more, please visit us at www.cabbage.com. Thank you.
0: And thank you. I, I guess um, it is uh, American Express. I mean, D- David, I'll probably come to you first. American Express: twenty-seven percent of American adults have a positive impression of Amex. This was from a UGov survey within the context of credit card issuers, uh, and five percent use Amex as their preferred card in the U.S. W- why, uh, it, of all, we we sometimes say rebrand new propositions uh, in order to resonate maybe with a different target market or target audience. But Amex is a pretty decent brand why do you think they've kept this as cabbage yes
2: yeah, it's, it's interesting isn't it they um they've been a sort of a prestige brand for such a long period of time haven't they in terms of uh, doing it that way i wonder if it's just because they don't want to risk that you know and actually this is a this is a new thing going into a, a slightly different market i mean i was quite surprised that they didn't just build this themselves really you know given the experience given the capability that they've got within their you know their four walls um creation of a you know a a, a checking account sense is is relatively straightforward but maybe that paints a picture of really what Amex's strategy is you know it's about sticking to their knitting to a certain degree doing what they do really well but bringing together players who have got more experience doing the things that they don't together to offer those services to their customers um I think the other thing I'd say on this one as well is, it's great, you know, it's great to get Catherine back on the podcast. Uh, Cabbage has been through a bit of a hard time, obviously, with everything that happened with the pandemic and lending, and you know, all of the uh, the, the difficulties over the last uh, year or so. So it's great to see, you know, great partnerships landing. And if this can work, and they can distribute to, you know, a really, really sizable uh, and healthy base. For the Amex customers as well, then you know it really puts Cabbage on a, a, a great growth trajectory. Uh, and, and as you say, not just being a, a faceless partner providing the the back end, but really upfront with uh, establishing greater credibility with customers. So it's um, I think all round probably a decent deal, um, albeit probably on the part of Amex sort of showing. Real emotional intelligence, really. You know, like most brands are so preoccupied with their logo being the one on everything and doing everything that uh, taking this type of approach is, uh, like I say, it shows a lot of emotional intelligence.
0: Yeah, they bought Cabbage last year in Q4 for around $750 million. They could probably have bought it for cheap. but saying that they also offer cabbage loans of up to a thousand dollars or to 150 thousand dollars through the platform as well which they couldn't perform so they've, they've got themselves both a checking and a a loan facility to smbs which is pretty cool um G- Gus just turning to you in terms of the timing of this you know we are hopefully fingers crossed um coming into the end of the pandemic so, so he said i think i've called that about three or four times on this podcast across the last six months but never mind um we're almost there um is this the right time now to be focusing on smbs in terms of you know they've been lent uh, an extraordinary amount of money through different uh you know variations of of, of schemes governmental schemes is now the time to actually help them manage that money and therefore is a new checking account you know something which uh, which will resonate
3: absolutely and i think if we look at cabbage and yeah it was a challenging year and um, for anybody but the amount of transactions and businesses that they supported through processing the the paycheck protection program in the US was huge. So they've got that sentiment with um, businesses, they've got a great platform. And Actually, what we're seeing coming out of this pandemic is businesses have actually been quite resilient and it's driving an awful lot of innovation and ambition within organisations who want to drive and grow and take the opportunity that sits in front of people. Um, we're certainly seeing it with a lot of small to medium businesses starting up and driving and starting to really want identity solutions. So I can see that being completely relevant for Cabbage and American Express as well. So I think in terms of timing, absolutely. Um, I, I, I'd put... This and being a successful um, launch, So yeah.
0: yeah, I think it uh, it's, it's, it feels like a, a right the right thing to do. So, Sammy, from your perspective, we'll talk more about the partnership between the two. Um, as an advocate for Tech Nation, obviously for tech companies, is this like the kind of the nirvana state you see, like a, a fintech? grow up, be acquired, and then actually, you know, work in partnership with the acquiring company to retain the brand and culture. Um, it sounds like it's almost, you know, too good to be true, but is this, from your perspective, is this kind of the Nirvana state? This is what you guys love to see.
4: Yeah, completely. I think that's always uh, the end goal. I think on our um, kind of flagship program of the Future 50, um, I, I think that is exactly what we look for, you know, great to see companies being acquired and to see them work so closely and ensure that company culture is still being kept and and protected, it's, it's yeah, it's always great to see.
0: Yeah, there's a, an awful lot they'll be able to do as well. Just, you know, adding to this story before we move on, Amex counts itself as the top card issuer for SMBs in the US and its portfolio is larger than those of its five closest competitors combined. So an enormous SMB base that it has. And you can imagine if you've got the credit card and now you've got the checking account and you've got a loans capability, you've got cash flow management very much sewn up in one uh, should everybody, you know, remain in your ecosystem. So exciting times for Amex uh, and the possibilities there let's move on to the next story um another exciting company uh which is shopify which i i actually i didn't know i don't know why but i didn't know they'd actually taken a stake in stripe in the last funding round this was i think three months ago or so and it was quite recent and i was thinking crikey i would have thought stripe is is worth more than shopify so i looked it up shopify is worth double the amount that stripe is shopify is a 170 billion pound company at the moment just astronomical stuff awesome company and it is expanded it's one click checkout shop pay to any merchant on Facebook or Google. This was picked up by TechCrunch again it has been uh, picked up quite a lot on social media. Shopify announced its one-click checkout service known as ShopPay will become available to any US merchant that sells on Facebook or Google even if they don't use Shopify software to power their online stores. So ShopPay is similar to other instant checkout solutions that offer an easy way to pay. This is solely online by reducing the number of fields the customer has to fill out during the checkout process. The service remembers and encrypts the customer's information so consumers can check out with just a tap, uh, when shopping online, and as of recently, even pay for purchases in instalments, thanks to a partnership uh, with a firm. And it's worth saying that Shopify also invested a significant stake in a firm as well. Uh, so again, you know, we've talked about partnerships between you know fintech startups and te- uh, and, and bigger companies, uh, and this is another good example of that. Uh, the news follows um, this week's confirmation that Shopify has taken a significant stake in Stripe, as I just said, uh, the backbone of uh, the Shop Pay service, as well as uh, Shopify's. Partner or merchant services, including bank accounts and debit cards. A lot to dissect here. Uh, David, I'll probably start with you. The benchmark that they're calling uh, this service's success is traditional ways to use card payments. is that Do you think that's still fair? Because, you know, we've seen Amazon, they've got a, 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 one, a one-click uh, solution. Uh, we've seen other organizations who have come up with the same sort of thing, third-party services who are also advocating one-click solutions. Is it still fair for, I guess, Shopify to say, well, the benchmark is still card-on-file and this is much better? Um, I'm not sure it's necessarily,
2: um, the benchmark, but I guess the, the weird thing that Shopify keep doing, I mean, it's similar to Amazon using Amazon pay, you know, they, they create distribution and the product in the same sense. So, you know, Amazon pay on other people's websites, great, but using it on their own website when they're creating, you know, and I think this is almost the unfair advantage, you know, everything that Stripe is doing is brilliant, but they require on people, they require other people to integrate it into their services for then their customers to use it. Whereas Shopify is just, it's, it's almost the biggest fintech company out there right now because they're just creating more and more. I mean, we've had um, Tui Allen on uh, a number of times over the last couple of months. And actually she says a similar thing to what Stripe says. It's just like we're solving customers' problems and we're, you know, we're sort of relentless at pursuing those problems. Almost the problems that they create for their customers because of, you know, the the excellence in their other services is almost, they're just mopping up the edges now and the edges just happen to be financial services plays. So whether it's, you know, this or the other things that they've been doing recently, then uh, I, I think their unfair advantage is they, they're generating the problem, they've got a captive audience, and then they're solving the problem. So it's, it's undoubtedly going to be ridiculously successful
0: yeah i was looking actually at shopify capital the other day as well because the distribution is just so good they've got 1.7 million merchants on their books and i think that's actually relatively outdated that was going back a couple of months 1.7 million merchants bear in mind there's only 5 million smbs or merchants in the uk um so 1.7 they've got just on their platform is just an extraordinary amount um gus what's your thoughts on this one
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, similar to Stripe, they hit the nail on the head in terms of the customer problems. And if we think about things that are on our minds as consumers and that businesses need to solve, one of them is we're incredibly impatient. I think time is probably one of our most precious commodities. So shaving seconds off that and making it a better experience, everybody appreciates that and remembers it. And the other is, again, security. People panic. They don't like to give away payment information repeatedly. They get nervous about it increasingly. We're becoming heightened and aware. So actually, by doing this, they're just making that customer experience a hell, lot, hell of a lot easier for everybody.
0: Yeah, it should be noticed that these are always the metrics you talk about when you look at uh, paying at checkout, but 70% faster checkout. This is what ShopPay is uh, advocating than a traditional uh, checkout offering with a 1.72x higher conversion rate, meaning fewer abandoned carts. That's really the name of the game of this type of service is to make sure that fulfillment goes ahead. Um, I think, uh, Sammy, just uh, a quick one for you. I guess, uh, like, just the most again m- monumental company phenomenal company uh, is it is, is it now right to call them a fintech company or is it now right to call them a financial company i mean they're almost you know they're sort of spreading themselves all over the place similar to stripe but in sort of all, all sorts of different verticals would you count them as a fintech company yourself
4: yeah it's a good question um I wouldn't have before this forecast, but now potentially. <laughs> um, so I mean, yeah, I think we're but, here to educate. Exactly, love it. Uh, no, but I mean, yeah, I mean, with this kind of new feature, it's it's kind of very fintech orientated. Of course, I'm not sure if you classify that whole. You know, when you look at the whole business, I wouldn't necessarily see them as a fintech. Um, but it's incredible. I mean, one click, one click checkout is exactly what I think. What consumers look for, what we need. I think convenience is key. Um, quite often and yeah, it's a very welcome move by shopify
2: yeah it's um it's going to be fascinating to see isn't it like what what do you when do you start classifying somebody a fintech player and actually at what point does the regulator start wanting to be a lot closer to what they're doing i mean is it like percentage of revenue i mean we know uh i think it's two percent of apple's revenue comes from apple pay now so it's like is two percent enough that actually the regulator is going to start knocking on your door and wanting to see more things and get more involved and you know, processing governance and risk and controls, you know, it's it's going to be fascinating. I think so many of these players, you know, you look at the distribution that Amazon have got for business lending, you know, you now with somebody like a Shopify, how close can they skim to not having to be fully regulated mm. in, in the ways in which the banks would need to be uh, until they take enough of the slices of the revenue without having to, you know, be a bank, as it were. Um, it's going to be interesting.
0: Yeah, we had uh, on the Under the Hood podcast series that we were at, we had Angela Strange on that. And she's obviously that famous saying that she had, that every company is going to become a fintech company. But you are right. It is interesting if that is the case and just knowing, traditionally, we always said that tech companies wouldn't want to accumulate you know, financial services legacy or debt or tech debt because it's going to get regulated at some point. Uh, but what is that point? And it is, you know, if you look at it, you know, Apple, I didn't know it was 2%. That I mean, that's still going to be an absolutely enormous number. Enormous.
2: Number. It is. So, what well, it is. At a 2% when you're Apple, that's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, I, I'd argue, I don't think everybody wants to be a fintech company, but I think everybody wants financial services revenue. Like, it's just, a, you know, slow moving industry, really hard to innovate, really hard to move. You know, if you can sort of dart in and out and, you know, pick off the uh, the revenue when the the big players can't then uh, that's the that's the dream right
0: yeah it's great for your mrr everyone loves monthly recurring revenue that's what everyone goes <laughs> all right um, let, let's move on uh, from uh, business case metrics um so into the next segment we talk about stories we didn't have time to cover in full uh, um so david you're up first i think
2: Yeah, so uh, first story was over on Finextra. So this is LayBuy. Pretty sure LayBuy is going to be a different thing over in New Zealand, isn't it, to what it means in the UK? So we'll see how well this one lands. Uh, LayBuy brings in-store Buy Now Pay Later to the UK. So New Zealand-based Buy Now Pay Later company LayBuy is launching its digital Buy Now Pay Later card in the UK, enabling customers to make in-store purchases with their phones. Uh, this follows a week after Klarna launched something very similar to this in an attack on the credit card fees space. Uh, customers load their card into their smartphone's wallet through Layby app and then can make purchases in checkout with a tap. Paying for the purchases happens in six weekly installments with no interest on it. Uh, I mean, this is similar to a couple of things we've talked about Today, I guess, Adam, this is look buy now, pay later, zero interest is all about making baskets bigger, right? You know, this is a incentive into the stores that people will buy more things because they don't really have to buy them now; they buy them over a period of time. So, um, I think it's interesting though that the pause, you know, at point of sale, buy now, pay later space is getting really crowded. Uh, and I think, you know, this is this is going to have to spend a ridiculous amount of money above the line to to get cut through at this stage, given how far ahead Klarna really is. So, uh, you know, it's good to see competition. Again, it will cause Klarna just to, you know, think really closely about the fees and charges and the structures that they've got in place. Um, but I think they're going to really, really struggle to get massive traction again, unless they go get, I don't know, Snoop Dogg, maybe.
0: Yeah, I was going to say they need a wrapper. <laughs>
2: that's it another rapper another rapper like I say I mean I I think I pitched this yesterday but Kanye West isn't doing much these days is he so yeah uh, it's
0: true he's the one
2: (laughs) I have to say those, those Justin adverts are incredible yeah, yeah my, my my seven-year-old still sings it now, even though
0: they're not on TV. So yeah, they've had, they've had some cut through, haven't they? Um, anyway. I'll, I'll move on to that. I get the Bitcoin story, so I'm happy. So but, uh, Bitcoin tops $40,000. I think it's actually just dipped under that today. Not that I'm looking every day, obviously. Um, ask him after Musk says uh, Tesla could use it again. Uh, so this was picked up by, I mean, this is literally picked up everywhere, but Bitcoin climbed back up to the $40,000 mark uh, last Monday uh, after another weekend of price swings following tweets from Elon Musk uh, Who fended off criticism over his market influence and said Tesla sold Bitcoin but may resume transactions using it in the future? Um, And interesting, again, going back to what we've just said before, uh, his quote was when there's confirmation of reasonable, and reasonable to him is around 50% clean energy usage by miners with a positive future trend, Tesla will resume allowing Bitcoin transactions. Um, He said that on Twitter. Um, I mean, it is amazing. Uh, Bitcoin's gone all over the place, just essentially based on Elon Musk's tweets. And obviously, the big spike happened when he announced a £1.5 billion Bitcoin purchase. That was in February off the back of Tesla. And then I think Square and others joined him uh, and said it would take the cryptocurrency in payment for cars. And he later said that the electric uh, car maker would not accept Bitcoin due to the concerns over how mining uh, the currency uh, requires, obviously, as we've talked about, a little bit high energy use and contributes to climate change. Sammy, I was going to uh, talk about this one myself, but I'll, I'll throw this one over to you considering it. Uh, it's more your bag.
4: Yeah, of course. Well, first of all, I think Elon Musk is the god of PR. Um, and, and I think in, in some ways, he's done the right thing. I think in terms of um, almost yeah banning uh, Bitcoin with Tesla, it, it's certainly the right move from a sustainability perspective. I think when you look at data mining, it, uh, especially within Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, it's incredibly emissions intensive. Um, so from that perspective, um, I agree with that. However, I would question elon's morals at some points you know is he doing it for the business or is he really doing it for the environment that's the Questioning
0: question Questioning elon's morals i don't know <laughs> no, don't know don't believe it no <laughs> um cool let's move on david uh, with the last one of these
2: yeah, uh, so this is a story over on Sky News. So this is fintech giant Wise uh, pushes button on long-awaited listing. So Wise hopes to announce their long-awaited public flotation within days, which has now been confirmed today. Uh, it does not involve raising new capital or bringing on new investors, but means shares held by Wise existing shareholders will become tradable on the LSE, the London Stock Exchange. Uh, they have also not yet advised on the share price Overall value, insiders expect the company's flotation to value uh, upwards of nine billion, well ahead of the previous estimates. Although recent London technology companies listings have been a bit volatile. Yeah, I'll be honest, I've been burned a few times by the, the last few of these ones that are going on. So Wise uh, have done an amazing job, haven't they? They are sort of OGs of the fintech space. Um, but I reckon I might let this one sort of stabilize a little bit before I uh, before I think about putting some money in.
0: Yeah, I've been. Uh, I've also been sucked in. A little bit recently, with uh, yeah. Anyway, but yes, if uh, a lot of them are sort of um, hiking up about what thirty to forty percent, literally on the morning that they IPO, and then there's sort of a um, not an enormous. Decrease, but there's a steady decline, sort of over the next month or so. And so many have happened this year since January. Um, it's actually hard to keep uh, keep count of them. But yeah,
2: well, well. And the hard thing is, is, is just the the ways in which you can get in. Usually, there's such a delay, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, the things like pension B. There was a bit of a delay to get through to you know to normal humans being able to kind of make it. So you miss out on all the fun bit, really, don't you? Yep. Before you end up getting the tail end of the the rise. But uh, uh, let's see where we are in a couple of years. Or I, I should advise uh, Adam and. David are not capable of giving financial advice. Yeah, I mean, so, uh, I, I can't
0: even do. I can't reinforce that enough or emphasise. <laughs> <Yeah>, it. <anything.
2: laughs> yeah, stressing, stressing it. The comments on Bitcoin definitely not advice, guys. Like, don't take it as advice. But
0: uh, just, just light-hearted although, commentary. Although I would, I do advocate Attenborough Coin. It's the perfect way to, uh, you know, if you, if you, if yeah. you think about, you know, car- net zero carbon emissions in the crypto world, Attenborough Coin. That's the one. Yeah, can save, be the your
2: one. Po- save, save your pockets, save the world. There you go. We've got the marketing campaign sorted out and everything. Uh, yeah. right.
0: and, and we'll we'll go to the last story, and, and it's our and finally story, um, which is that the web founder, the World Wide Web founder, Tim Berners-Lee, uh, is to auction the source code for the internet as an NFT. Of course he is. This was on the BBC. So the creator of the World Wide Web, Mr. Berners-Lee, is selling off the original code used to create the modern internet. Sotheby's is advertising the collection as the only signed copy – of the code for the first web browser in existence uh, in a manner similar to the way handwritten journals with a famous figure might be sold. The auction house maintains that the carbon footprint of this NFT is negligible because it will pay for the carbon offset uh, for the minting and transaction costs of the sale, um, though the blockchain on which the transaction lives has immense day-to-day running costs. Sotheby's is setting the opening bid at $1,000. That seems cheap.
2: I think that's disgraceful. Like, I think it's truly disgraceful. I mean, Sir Tim, like he's a he's like a national treasure, isn't he? In terms of what it is, Charlie bit my finger. Went for five hundred grand, like five
0: hundred grand.
2: What? And this is going for thousands.
0: One grand. I mean, I mean, I'll buy it for a grand. Oh, it's got to be worth a (laughs) hedge.
2: I reckon. Like, we should club together. Like, I'm up for that one again. Don't uh, listen to me and
0: David for investment advice. I can't hear. How many times can we repeat that in a podcast? But I mean, a thousand pounds—that seems low.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, Adam. I don't think we're getting into Sotheby's, are we? Let's be honest. I think, uh, I think, I think we'll struggle to get through the door. But uh, uh, we, we maybe we should start going and looking on eBay, seeing what we can do on eBay. But I mean, this is this is interesting, isn't it? it I, I hope it goes for like a ridiculous amount. If like some random fucking tweet from Elon Musk can go for like ridiculous amounts of money, or uh, some kid burning some other kid's finger goes for five hundred thousand, it's like this is like proper history isn't it really in terms of what's going on also i mean i worry a little bit about sir tim if he's got to start flogging off yeah uh Initial bits of the code. It's like somebody might have regretted, you know, open sourcing all of that code at the beginning because <laughs> he, he could have made a lot more money. I was it, thinking that.
0: You? I was thinking like, well, I didn't read the backstory of why he's doing. I mean, he might be doing this just because to jump on the bandwagon, you know, because endorsing the movement of NFTs and use of Ethereum, etc. But um yeah, I was thinking, you know, it, it'd be so sad to read it was because he's like he needs the cash. I don't know. Um, so, so apparently, so the 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 sale is being handled
2: by Sotheby's auction, and the money made will be t- put oh. towards causes chosen by Sir Tim and his wife. Still not for personal profit. So, like, how did how did he make his money, Sir Tim? Like, because uh, he if he basically sold off the thing that he made that was amazing for no, you know, gave it away for no money. I, I think we should look into where he's that, getting his that, money. That from.
0: That man is worth a lot of money on the speaker circuit. That's true. That is very true. <laughs> it's, it's my guess. Um, G- Gus, your thoughts on this one?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's. I always think back to it in the bit in our industry that we hear all the time is the internet was written and designed with no identity and no peace. So, you know, that as a bit of historical memorabilia, you're right, it's a huge bit of history. But also, I can imagine there's some techie geeks out there that would just love to see it and get their hands on it. I mean... A, look how far we've come, but that's, that's the start. That's where it all kicked off. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what it reaches.
2: What do you reckon it's on? Like, cause like, it's not going to be on a USB, is it going to be like on one of those bloody great big like floppy disks? Do you reckon? Because like, uh, you know, like he never, he never, they, it didn't exist at that point. Like, I really think we should do this. Like, between the four of us, it's two hundred and fifty dollars. Like, what's the worst thing? Oh, maybe, maybe. At that point?
0: Like,
3: maybe that's a thousand pound. Maybe that's a thousand pound start point. And if it's on a floppy disk, somebody's got to get a device to actually get it open and the, the, see it. That's true. Yeah. The, the only thing. True. The only
0: thing is, you then need to once you've cracked the floppy disk and you've bought it, you then got to display it in a digital museum, and then you're into the kind of you're into that kind of world of you know how do you actually display i know there's also and it's an amazing universe of sort of digital museums that are st- uh, sort of starting up now on on the chain um but yeah then you've got the cost of doing that so actually there's sort of hidden costs in this so it's not just the grand we've got to think about this properly <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, but it's, it's, it's not what I do. Just don't worry about that. Just like make the investment. Worry about the running costs later. Like we've suddenly we've got like uh we've got to keep it in some sort of air conditioned chamber for the rest of time. <laughs> then uh it becomes a becomes a lot more expensive, doesn't it? I've still it?
0: got my copy of Sensible Soccer on a floppy disc. I wonder how much that would go for anyway. Um right, that's all we got time for this week Thanks so much, guys. That was uh I enjoyed that one. Uh and that wraps up this week's new show. Um so where can people find out more about you, Gus, That start with yourself
3: oh um twitter i mean there's not that many gusses and gbgs a simple search gets you there um or equally um just head over to gbg and there's um fair bits of information on there
4: cool
0: uh sammy yourself
4: yeah i'm actually very new to twitter uh surprisingly <laughs> so link, linkedin is a uh, is, is the go-to if you're interested in connecting uh yeah sammy fry i don't think there's too many sammy fries so um yeah or or, or just simply t- type in sammy fry Tech Nation cool uh
0: david yourself
2: uh you always find me over in linkedin these days so uh yeah look, look me up on linkedin
0: uh, and I'm on your Twitter at AdamD8. Uh, and uh, obviously, we're all at 11FS.com. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review, please. Uh, it helps us to make uh, the show better and helps others to find the show. Uh, as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Uh, thanks so much for this week and goodbye.